Chapter Eight, Part One of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter Eight: The Mystery of the Strong Room, Part One. Late in the autumn of that same year, Madame Colucci was once more back in town. There was a warrant out for the arrest of Lockhart, who had evidently fled the country, but Madame, still secure in her own invincible cunning, was at large. The firm conviction that she was even now preparing a mine for our destruction was the reverse of comforting, and Defrayer and I spent many gloomy moments as we thought over the possibilities of our future. On a certain evening towards the latter end of October I went to dine with my friend. I found him busy arranging his table, which was tastefully decorated and laid for three. "'An unexpected guest is coming to dine,' he said as I entered the room. "'I must speak to you alone before he arrives. Come into the smoking-room. He may be here at any moment.' I followed Dufrayer, who closed the door behind us. "'I must tell you everything, and quickly,' he began. "'I must also ask you to be guided by me. I have consulted with Tyler, and he says it is our best course.' "'Well?' I interrupted. "'The name of the man who is coming here to-night is Maurice Carleton,' continued Dufrayer. His mother was a Greek, but on the father's side he comes of a good old English stock. He inherited a place in Norfolk, Core Castle, from his father, but the late owner lost heavily on the turf, and in consequence the present man has endeavoured to retrieve his fortunes as a diamond merchant. I met him some years ago in Athens. He has been wonderfully successful, and is now, I believe, or at least so he says, one of the richest men in Europe. He called upon me with regard to some legal business, and in the course of conversation referred incidentally to Madame Colucci. I drew him out, and found that he knew a good deal about her, but what their actual relations are I cannot say. I was very careful not to commit myself, and after consideration asked him to dine here to-night in order that we both might see him together. I have thought over everything carefully, and am quite sure our only course now is not to mention anything we know about Madame. We may only give ourselves away in doing so. By keeping quiet we shall have a far better chance of seeing what she is up to. You agree with me, don't you? Surely we ought to acquaint Carlton with her true character? I replied. Dufrayer shrugged his shoulders impatiently. No, he said, we have played that game too often, and you know what the result has been. Believe me, we shall serve both his interest and ours best by remaining quiet. Carlton is living now at his own place, but comes up to London constantly. About two years ago he married a young English lady, who was herself the widow of an Italian. I believe they have a son, but am not quite sure. He seems an uncommonly nice fellow himself, and I should say his wife was fortunate in her husband. But there, I hear his ring. Let us go into the next room. We did so, and the next moment Carlton appeared. Dufrayer introduced him to me, and soon afterwards we went into the dining-room. Carlton was a handsome man, built on a somewhat massive scale. His face was of the Greek type, but his physique that of an Englishman. He had dark eyes, somewhat long and narrow, and apt, except when aroused, to wear a sleepy expression. It needed but a glance to show that in his blood was a mixture of the fiery east, with the nonchalance and suppression of all feeling which characterized John Bull. As I watched him, without appearing to do so, I came to the conclusion that I had seldom seen more perfect self-possession, or stronger indications of suppressed power. As the meal proceeded, conversation grew brisk and brilliant. Carlton talked well, and led on by Dufrayer gave a short résumé of his life since they had last met. "'Yes,' he said, "'I am uncommonly lucky, and have done very well on the whole. Diamond-dealing, as perhaps you know, is one of the most risky things that any man can take up. 
But my early training gave me a sound knowledge of the business, and I think I know what I am about. There is no trade to which the art of swindling has been more applied than to mine, but there I have had luck, immense luck, such as does not come to more than one man in a hundred. I suppose you have had some pretty exciting moments, I remarked. No, curiously enough, he replied, I have personally never had any exciting times. Big deals, of course, are often anxious moments, but beyond the natural anxiety to carry a large thing through, my career has been fairly simple. Some of my acquaintances, however, have not been so lucky, and one in particular is just going through a rare experience. Indeed, I answered, are you at liberty to tell us what it is? He glanced from one of us to the other. I think so, he said. Perhaps you have already heard of the great Rocheville Diamond? No, I remarked. Tell us about it, if you will. Dinner being over, he leant back in his chair and helped himself to a cigar. It is curious how few people know about this diamond, he said although it is one of the most beautiful stones in the world. For actual weight, of course, many of the well-known stones can beat it. It weighs exactly eighty-two carats, and is an egg-shaped stone with a big indented hollow at the smaller end, but for the luster and brilliance I have never seen its equal. It has had a curious history. For centuries it was in the possession of an Indian Maharaja. It was bought from him by an American millionaire, and passed through my hands some ten years ago. I would have given anything to have kept it, but my finances were not so prosperous as they are now, and I had to let it go. A Russian baron bought it and took it to Naples, where it was stolen. This diamond was lost to the world till a couple of months ago, when it turned up in this country. When Carlton mentioned Naples, the happy hunting ground of the Brotherhood, Dufrayer glanced at me. But there is a fatality about its ownership, he continued. It has again disappeared. How? I cried. I wish I could tell you, he answered. The circumstances of its loss are as follows. A month ago my wife and I were staying with an old friend, a relation of my mother's, a merchant named Michael Roden, of Roden Frere Cornhill, the great dealers. Roden said he had a surprise for me, and he showed me the Rocheville diamond. He told me that he had bought it from a Singalese dealer in London, and for a comparatively small price. "'What is its actual value?' interrupted Dufrayer. "'Roughly, I should think, about fifteen thousand pounds, but I believe Roden secured it for ten. Well, poor chap, he has now lost both the stone and his money.' My firm belief is that what he bought was an imitation, though how a man of his experience could have done such a thing is past knowledge. This is exactly what happened. Mrs. Carleton and I, as I have said, were staying down at his place in Staffordshire, and he had the diamond with him. At my wife's request, for she possesses a most intelligent interest in precious stones, he took us down to his strong-room and showed it to us. He meant to have it set for his own wife, who is a very beautiful woman. The next morning he took the diamond up to town, and Mrs. Carleton and I returned to Cor Castle. I got a wire from Rodin that same afternoon, begging me to come up at once. I found him in a state of despair. He showed me the stone, to all appearance identical, the same as the one we had looked at on the previous evening, and declared that it had been just proved to be an imitation. He said it was the most skilful imitation he had ever seen. We put it to every known test, and there was no doubt whatever that it was not a diamond. The specific gravity test was final on this point. The problem now is— did he buy the real diamond, which has since been stolen, or an imitation? He swears that the Rocheville diamond was in his hands, that he tested it carefully at the time. He also says that since it came into his possession, it was absolutely impossible for anyone to steal it. And yet, that the theft has been committed, there is very little doubt. At least one thing is clear. The stone which he now possesses is not a diamond at all. "'Has anything been discovered since?' I asked. "'Nothing,' replied Carlton, rising as he spoke. And never will be, I expect. Of one thing there is little doubt. 
The shape and peculiar appearance of the Rocheville diamond are a matter of history to all diamond dealers, and the maker of the imitation must have had the stone in his possession for some considerable time. The facsimile is absolutely and incredibly perfect. "'Is it possible?' said Dufrayer suddenly. "'That the strong-room in Rodin's house could have been tampered with?' "'You would scarcely say so if you knew the peculiar make of that special strong-room,' replied Carlton. "'I think I can trust you and your friend with a somewhat important secret. Two strong-rooms have been built, one for me at Cor Castle, and one for my friend Rodin at his place in Staffordshire. These rooms are constructed on such a peculiar plan that the moment any key is inserted in the lock electric bells are set ringing within. These bells are connected in each case with the bedroom of the respective owners.' Thus you will see for yourselves that no one could tamper with the lock without immediately giving such an alarm as would make any theft impossible. My friend Rodin and I invented these special safes, and got them carried out on plans of our own. We both believe that our most valuable stones are safer in our own houses than in our places of business in town. But stay, gentlemen, you shall see for yourselves. Why should you not both come down to my place for a few days' shooting? I shall then have the greatest possible pleasure in showing you my strong-room." You may be interested, too, in seeing some of my collection. I flatter myself, a unique one. The weather is perfect just now for shooting, and I have plenty of pheasants, also room enough and to spare. We are a big, cheerful party, and the lioness of the season is with us, Madame Colucci. As he said the last words, both Dufrayer and I could not refrain from starting. Luckily it was not noticed. My heart beat fast. It is very kind of you, I said. I shall be charmed to come. Dufrayer glanced at me caught my eye, and said quietly, "'Yes, I think I can get away. I will come with pleasure.' "'That is right. I will expect you both next Monday, and will send to Durbrook Station to meet you by any train you like to name. We promised to let him know at what time we should be likely to arrive, and soon afterwards he left us. When he did so, we drew our chairs near the fire. "'Well, we are in for it now,' said Dufrayer, "'face to face at last. What a novel experience it will be!' who would believe that we were living in the dreary nineteenth century but of course she may not stay when she hears we are coming i expect she will i said she has no fear hullo who can this be now i added as the electric bell of the front door suddenly rang perhaps it is carlton back again said dufrayer i am not expecting any one the next moment the door was opened and our principal agent mr tyler himself walked in good evening gentlemen he said i must apologize for this intrusion but important news has just reached me, and the very last you would expect to hear. He chuckled as he spoke. Madame Colucci's house in Welbeck Street was broken into a month ago. I am told that the place was regularly sacked. She was away in her yacht at the time, after the attempt on your life, Mr. Head, and it is supposed that the place was unguarded. Whatever the reason, she has never reported the burglary, and Ford at Scotland Yard has only just got wind of it. He suspects that it was done by the same gang, that broke into the jewellers in Piccadilly some months ago. It is a very curious case. "'Do you think it is one of her own gang that has rounded on her?' I asked. "'Hardly,' he replied. "'I do not believe any of them would dare to. No, it is an outside job. But Ford is watching the matter for the official force.' "'Mr. Dufrayer and I happen to know where Madame Colucci is at the present moment,' I said. I then gave Tyler a brief résumé of our interview with Carlton, and told him that it was our intention to meet Madame face to face early in the following week. "'What a splendid piece of luck!' he cried, rubbing his hands with ill-suppressed excitement. "'With your acumen, Mr. Head, you will be certain to find out something, and we shall have her at last. I only wish the chance were mine.' "'Well, have yourself in readiness,' said Dufrayer. "'We may have to telegraph to you at a moment's notice. 
"'Be sure we shall not leave a stone unturned to get Madame to commit herself. For my part,' he added, although it seems scarcely credible, I strongly suspect that she is at the bottom of the diamond mystery. It was late in the afternoon on the following Monday, and almost dark, when we arrived at Cor Castle. Carlton himself met us at the nearest railway station, and drove us to the house, which was a fine old pile, with a castellated roof and a large Elizabethan wing. The place had been extensively altered and restored, and was replete with every modern comfort. Carlton led us straight into the centre hall, calling out in a cheerful tone to his wife as he did so. A slender, very fair and girlish-looking figure approached. She held out her hand, gave us each a hearty greeting, and invited us to come into the centre of a circle of young people who were gathered round a huge, old-fashioned hearth, on which logs of wood blazed and crackled cheerily. Mrs. Carlton introduced us to one or two of the principal guests, and then resumed her place at a table on which a silver tea-service was placed. It needed but a brief glance to show us that amongst the party was Madame Colucci. She was standing near her hostess, and just as my eye caught hers, she bent and said a word in her ear. Mrs. Carlton coloured almost painfully, looked from her to me, and then once more rising from her seat, came forward one or two steps. "'Mr. Head,' she said, "'may I introduce you to my great friend, the Madame Colucci? By the way, she tells me that you are old acquaintances.' "'Very old acquaintances, am I not right?' said Madame Colucci, in her clear, perfectly well-bred voice. She bowed to me, and then held out her hand. I ignored the proffered hand, and bowed coldly. She smiled in return. "'Come and sit near me, Mr. Head,' she said. "'It is a pleasure to meet you again. You have treated me very badly of late. You have never come once to see me.' "'Did you expect me to come?' I replied quietly. There was something in my tone which caused the blood to mount to her face. She raised her eyes, gave me a bold, full glance of open defiance, and then said in a soft voice, which scarcely rose above a whisper, "'No, you are too English.' Then she turned to our hostess, who was seated not a yard away. "'You forget your duties, Leonora. Mr. Head is waiting for his tea.' "'Oh, I beg a thousand pardons,' said Mrs. Carlton. "'I did not know I had forgotten you, Mr. Head.' She gave me a cup at once, but as she did so, her hand shook so much that the small, gold-mounted and jewelled spoon rattled in the saucer. "'You are tired, Nora,' said Madame Colucci. "'May I not relieve you of your duties?' "'No, no, I am all right,' was the reply, uttered almost pettishly. "'Do not take any notice just now, I beg of you.' Madame turned to me. "'Come and talk to me,' she said, in the imperious tone of a sovereign addressing a subject. She walked to the nearest window, and I followed her. "'Yes,' she said at once, "'you are too English to play your part well. Can you not recognize the common courtesies of warfare? Are you not sensible to the gallant attentions of the duelist? You are too crude. If our great interests clash, there is every reason why we should be doubly polite when we do meet.' "'You are right, madam, in speaking of us as duelists,' I whispered back. "'But the duel is not over yet.' "'No, it is not,' she answered. "'I have the pertinacity of my countrymen,' I continued. "'It is hard to rouse us, but when we are roused it is a fight to grim death.' She said nothing further. At that moment a young man of the party approached. She called out to him in a playful tone to approach her side, and I withdrew. At dinner that night Madame's brilliancy came into full play. There was no subject on which she could not talk. She was at once fantastic, irresponsible, and witty. Without the slightest difficulty she led the conversation— turning it into any channel she chose. Our host hung upon her words as if fascinated, 
Indeed, I do not think there was a man of the party who had eyes or ears for any one else. I had gone down to dinner with Mrs. Carleton, and in the intervals of watching Madame Colucci I could not help observing her. She belonged to the fair-haired and Saxon type, and when very young must have been extremely pretty. She was pretty still, but not to the close observer. Her face was too thin and too anxious. The color in her cheeks was almost fixed. Her hair, too, showed signs of receding from the temples, although the fashionable arrangement of the present day prevented this being specially noticed. While she talked to me, I could not help observing that her attention wandered, that her eyes on more than one occasion met those of Madame, and that when this encounter took place the younger woman trembled quite perceptibly. It was easy to draw my own conclusions. The usual thing had happened. Madame was not spending her time at Cork Castle for nothing. Our hostess was in her power. Carlton himself evidently knew nothing of this. With such an alliance, mischief of the usual intangible nature was brewing. Could Defrayer and I stop it? Beyond doubt there was more going on than met the eye. As these thoughts flashed through my brain, I held myself in readiness, every nerve tense and taut. To play my part as an Englishman, should I must have, above all things, self-possession. So I threw myself into the conversation. I answered Madame back in her own coin, and presently, in an argument which she conducted with rare brilliance, we had the conversation to ourselves. But all the time, as I talked and argued, and differed from the brilliant Italian, my glance was on Mrs. Carleton. I noticed that a growing restlessness had seized her, that she was listening to us with feverish and intense eagerness, and that her eyes began to wear a hunted expression. She ceased to play her part as hostess, and looked from me to Madame Colucci as one under a spell. Just before we retired for the night, Mrs. Carleton came up and took a seat near me in the drawing-room. Madame was not in the room, having gone with Defrayer, Carleton, and several other members of the party to the billiard-room. Mrs. Carleton looked eagerly and nervously round her. Her manner was decidedly embarrassed. She made one or two short remarks, ending them abruptly, as if she wished to say something else, but did not dare. I resolved to help her. "'Have you known Madame Colucci long?' I asked. "'For a short time, a year or two, she replied. "'Have you, Mr. Head?' "'For more than ten years,' I answered. I stooped a little lower, and let my voice drop in her ear. "'Madame Colucci is my greatest enemy.' I said. "'Oh, good heavens!' she cried. She half started to her feet, then controlled herself, and sat down again. "'She is also my greatest enemy. She is my direst foe. She is a devil, not a woman,' said the poor woman, bringing out her words with the most tense and passionate force. "'Oh, may I, may I speak to you, and alone?' "'If your confidence relates to Madame Colucci, I shall be only too glad to hear what you have to say,' I replied. "'They are coming back, I hear them,' she said. I will find an opportunity to-morrow. She must not know that I am taking you into my confidence. She left me, to talk eagerly, with flushed cheeks, and eyes bright with ill-suppressed terror, to a merry girl who had just come in from the billiard-room. The party soon afterwards broke up for the night, and I had no opportunity of saying a word to Defrayer, who slept in a wing at the other end of the house. The next morning after breakfast, Carlton took Defrayer and myself down to see his strong-room. The ingenuity and cleverness of the arrangement by which the electric bells were sounded the moment the key was put into the lock struck me with amazement. The safe was of the strongest pattern, the levers and bolts, as well as the arrangement of the lock, making it practically impregnable. "'Rodin's safe resembles mine in every particular,' said Carlton, as he turned the key in the lock, and readjusted the different bolts in their respective places. "'You can see for yourselves that no one could rob such a place without detection.' 
"'It would certainly be black magic if he did,' was my response. "'We have arranged for a shooting party this morning,' continued Carlton. "'Let us forget diamonds and their attendant anxieties, and enjoy ourselves out of doors. The birds are plentiful, and I trust we shall have a good time.' He took us upstairs, and we started a few moments later on our expedition. It was arranged that the ladies should meet us for lunch at one of the keeper's cottages. We spent a thoroughly pleasant morning. The sport was good, and I had seldom enjoyed myself better. The thought of Madame Colucci, however, intruded itself upon my memory from time to time. What, too, was the matter with Mrs. Carleton? It needed but to glance at Carleton to see that he was not in her secret. In the open air, and acting the part of host, which he did to perfection, I had seldom seen a more genial fellow. When we sat down to lunch I could not help owning to a sense of relief, when I perceived that Madame Colucci had not joined us. Mrs. Carleton was waiting for us in the keeper's cottage, and several other ladies were with her. She came up to my side immediately. "'May I walk with you after lunch, Mr. Head?' she said. "'I have often gone out with the guns before now, and I don't believe you will find me in the way.' "'I shall be delighted to have your company,' I replied. "'Madame is ill,' continued Mrs. Carleton, dropping her voice a trifle. She had a severe headache and was obliged to go to her room. This is my opportunity, she added, and I mean to seize it. I noticed that she played with her food, and soon announcing that I had had quite enough, I rose. Mrs. Carleton and I did not wait for the rest of the party, but walked quickly away together. Soon the shooting was resumed, and we could hear the sound of the beaters, and also an occasional shot fired ahead of us. At first my companion was silent. She walked quickly, and seemed anxious to detach herself altogether from the shooting party. Her agitation was very marked, but I saw that she was afraid to come to the point. Again I resolved to help her. "'You are in trouble,' I said, "'and Madame Colucci has caused it. Now tell me everything. Be assured that if I can help you, I will. Be also assured of my sympathy. I know Madame Colucci. Before now I have been enabled to get her victims out of her clutches.' "'Have you, indeed?' she answered. She looked at me with a momentary sparkle of hope in her eyes, then it died out. "'But in my case that is impossible,' she continued. "'Still, I will confide in you. I will tell you everything. To know that someone else shares my terrible secret will be an untold relief.' She paused for a moment, then continued, speaking quickly. "'I am in the most awful trouble. Life has become almost unbearable to me. My trouble is of such a nature that my husband is the very last person in the world to whom I can confide it. I waited in silence. "'You doubtless wonder at my last words,' she continued. "'But you will see what I mean when I tell you the truth. Of course you will regard what I say as an absolute secret?' "'I will not reveal a word you are going to tell me, without your permission,' I answered. "'Thank you. That is all that I need. This is my early history. You must know it in order to understand what follows. When I was very young, not more than seventeen, I was married to an Italian of the name of Count Porcelli. My people were poor, and he was supposed to be rich. He was considered a good match. He was a handsome man, but many years my senior. Almost immediately after the marriage my mother died, and I had no near relations or friends in England. The Count took me to Naples, and I was not long there before I made some terrible discoveries. My husband was a leading member of a political secret society whose name I never heard. I need not enter into particulars of that awful time. Suffice it to say that he subjected me to almost every cruelty. In the autumn of 1893, while we were in Rome, Count Porcelli was stabbed one night in the Forum. He had parted from me in a fury at some trifling act of disobedience to his intolerable wishes, and I never saw him again, either alive or dead. 
His death was an immense relief to me. I returned home, and two years afterwards, in 1895, I married Mr. Carlton, and everything was bright and happy. A year after the marriage we had a little son. I have not shown you my boy, for he is away from home at present. He is the heir to my husband's extensive estates, and is a beautiful child. My husband was, and is, devotedly attached to me. Indeed, he is the soul of honour, chivalry, and kindness. I began to forget those fearful days in Naples and Rome. But, Mr. Head, a year ago everything changed. I went to see that fiend in human guise, Madame Colucci. You know she poses as a doctor. It was the fashion to consult her. I was suffering from a trifling malady, and my husband begged me to go to her. I went, and we quickly discovered that we both possessed ties, awful ties, to the distant past. Madame Colucci knew my first husband, Count Porcelli, well. She told me that he was alive and in England, and that my marriage to Mr. Carlton was void. You may imagine my agony. If this were indeed true, what was to become of my child, and what would Mr. Carlton's feelings be? The shock was so tremendous that I became ill, and was almost delirious for a week. During that time Madame herself insisted on nursing me. She was outwardly kind, and told me that my sorrow was hers, and that she certainly would not betray me. But she said that Count Porcelli had heard of my marriage, and would not keep my secret, if I did not make it worth his while. From that moment the most awful blackmailing began. From time to time I had to part with large sums of money. Mr. Carlton is so rich and generous that he would give me anything without question. This state of things has gone on for a year. I have kept the awful danger at bay at the point of a sword. "'But how can you tell that Count Porcelli is alive?' I asked. "'Remember that there are few more unscrupulous people than Madame Colucci. How do you know that this may not be a fabrication on her part, in order to wring money from you?' "'I have not seen Count Porcelli,' replied my companion. "'But all the same, the proof is incontestable, for Madame has brought me letters from him. He promises to leave me in peace, if I will provide him with money. But at the same time he assures me that he will declare himself at any moment if I fail to listen to his demands. "'Nevertheless, my impression is,' I replied, "'that Count Porcelli is not in existence, and that Madame is playing a risky game. But you have more to tell?' "'I have.' You have by no means heard the worst yet. My present difficulty is one to scare the stoutest heart. A month ago Madame came to our house in town, and sitting down opposite to me made a most terrible proposal. She took a jewel-case from her pocket, and, touching a spring, revealed within the largest diamond that I had ever seen. She laid it in my hand. It was egg-shaped, and had an indentation at one end. While I was gazing at it and admiring it, she suddenly told me that it was only an imitation. I stared at her in amazement. "'Now listen attentively,' she said. "'All your future depends on whether you have brains, wit, and tact for a great emergency. The stone you hold in your hands is an imitation, a perfect one. I had it made from my knowledge of the original. It would take the greatest expert in the diamond market who did not apply tests to it. The real stone is at the house of Monsieur Rodin. You and your husband, I happen to know, are going to stay at the Rodin's place in the country to-morrow. The real stone, the great Rocheville diamond, was stolen from my house in Welbeck Street six weeks ago. It was purchased by Monsieur Rodin from a Singalese employed by the gang who stole it, at a very large figure, but also at only a third of its real value. For reasons which I need not explain, I was unable to expose the burglary, and in consequence it was easy to get rid of the stone for a large sum. But those who think that I will tamely submit to such a gigantic loss little know me. I am determined that the stone shall once more come into my possession, either by fair means or foul. Now you are the only person who can help me. 
for you will be unsuspected and can work where I should not have a chance. It is to be your task to substitute the imitation for the real stone. How can I? I asked. Easily, if you will follow my guidance. When you are at the Rodin's, you must lead the conversation to the subject of diamonds, or rather, you must get your husband to do so, for he would be even less suspected than you. He will ask Monsieur Rodin to show you both his strong room where his valuable jewels are kept. You must make an excuse to be in the room a moment by yourself. You must substitute the real for the unreal, as deftly as if you were possessed of legerdemain. Take your opportunity to do this as best you can. All I ask of you is to succeed. Otherwise— Her eyes blazed into mine. They were brighter than diamonds themselves. Otherwise, I repeated faintly, Count Porcelli is close at hand. He shall claim his wife. Think of Mr. Carlton's feelings. Think of your son's doom. She paused, raising her brows with a gesture peculiar to her own. I need not say anything further, she added. Well, Mr. Head, I struggled against her awful proposal. At first I refused to have anything to do with it, but she piled on the agony, showing me only too plainly what my position would be did I not accede to her wishes. She traded on my weakness, on my passionate love for the child and for his father. Yes, in the end I yielded to her. The next day we went to the Redans. Despair rendered me cunning. I introduced the subject of the jewels to my husband, and begged of him to ask Monsieur Rodin to show us his safe and its contents. Monsieur Rodin was only too glad to do so. It is one of his fads, and that fad is also shared by my husband, to keep his most valuable stones in a safe peculiarly constructed in the vaults of his own house. My husband has a similar strong room. We went into the vaults, and Monsieur Rodin allowed me to take the Rocheville diamond in my hand for a moment. When I had it in my possession I stepped backward, made a clumsy movement by intention, knocked against a chair, slipped, and the diamond fell from my fingers. I saw it flash and roll away. Quicker almost than thought, I put my foot on it, and before anyone could detect me had substituted the imitation for the real. The real stone was in my pocket, and the imitation in Monsieur Rodin's case, without anyone being in the least the wiser. With the great Rocheville diamond feeling heavier than lead in my pocket, I went away the next morning with my husband. I had valuable jewels of my own, and have a jewel-case of unique pattern. It is kept in the strong-room at the castle. I obtained the key of the strong-room from my husband, went down to the vaults, and under the pretense of putting some diamonds and sapphires away, locked up the Rocheville diamond in my own private jewel-case. It is impossible to steal it from there, owing to the peculiar construction of the lock of the case, which starts electric bells ringing the moment the key is put inside. Now listen, Mr. Head. Madame knows all about the strong-room, for she has wormed its secrets from me. She knows that with all her cleverness she cannot pick that lock. She has therefore told me that unless I give her the Rocheville diamond to-night she will expose me. She declares that no entreaties will turn her from her purpose. She is like adamant. She has no heart at all. Her sweetness and graciousness, her pretended sympathy, are all on the surface. It is useless appealing to anything in her but her avarice. Fear? She does not know the meaning of the word. Oh, what am I to do? I will not let her have the diamond, but how mad I was ever to yield to her! I gazed at my companion for a few moments without speaking. The full meaning of her extraordinary story was at last made abundantly plain. The theft which so completely puzzled Monsieur Rodin was explained at last. What Carlton's feelings would be when he knew the truth, it was impossible to realize, but know the truth he must, and as soon as possible. I was more than ever certain that Count Porcelli's death was a reality, and that Madame was blackmailing the unfortunate young wife for her own purposes. 
but although I believe that such was assuredly the case, and that Mrs. Carlton had no real cause to dread dishonour to herself and her child, I had no means of proving my own belief. The moment had come to act, and to act promptly. Mrs. Carlton was overcome by the most terrible nervous fear, and had already got herself into the gravest danger by her theft of the diamond. She looked at me intently, and at last said, in a whisper, "'Whatever you think of me, speak. I know you believe that I am one of the most guilty wretches in existence, but you can scarcely realize what my temptation has been.' "'I sympathize with you, of course,' I said then. "'But there is only one thing to be done. Now may I speak quite plainly?' I believe that Count Porcelli is dead. Madame is quite clever enough to forge letters which you would believe to be bona fide. Remember that I know this woman well. She possesses consummate genius, and never yet owned to a scruple of any sort. It is only too plain that she reaps an enormous advantage by playing on your fears. You can never put things right, therefore, until you confide in your husband. Remember how enormous the danger is to him. He will not leave a stone unturned to come face to face with the Count." Madame will have to show her hand, and you will be saved. Will you take my advice? Will you go to him immediately? I dare not. Very well. You have another thing to consider. Monsieur Rodin is determined to recover the stolen diamond. The cleverest members of the detective force are working day and night in his behalf. They are quite clever enough to trace the theft to you. You will be forced to open your jewel-case in their presence. Just think of your feelings. Yes, Mrs. Carlton, believe me, I am right. Your husband must know all. The diamond must be returned to its rightful owner immediately. She wrung her hands in agony. I cannot tell my husband, she replied. I will find out some other means of getting rid of the diamond. Even Madame had better have it than this. Think of the wreck of my complete life. Think of the dishonour to my child. Mr. Head, I know you are kind, and I know your advice is really wise, but I cannot act on it. Madame has faithfully sworn to me that when she gets the Rochelle diamond, she will leave the country for ever, and that I shall never hear of her again. Count Porcelli will accompany her. Do you believe this? I asked. In this special case, I am inclined to believe her. I know that Madame has grown very anxious of late, and I am sure she feels that she is in extreme danger. She has dropped hints to that effect. She must have been sure that her position was a most unstable one when she refused to communicate the burglary in Welbeck Street to the police. But hark, I hear footsteps. Who is coming? Mrs. Carlton bent forward and peered through the brushwood. "'I possess the most deadly fear of that woman,' she continued. "'Even now she may be watching us. That headache may have been all a presence. God knows what will become of me if she discovers that I have confided in you. Don't let it seem that we have been talking about anything special. Go on with your shooting. We are getting too far away from the others.' She had scarcely said the words before I saw in the distance Madame Colucci approaching. She was walking slowly, with that graceful motion which invariably characterized her steps. Her eyes were fixed on the ground. Her face looked thoughtful. "'What are we to do?' said Mrs. Carlton. "'You have nothing to do at the present moment,' I replied, but to keep up your courage. As to what you are to do in the immediate future, I must see you again. What you have told me requires immediate action. I swear I will save you, and get you out of this scrape, at any cost.' "'Oh, how good you are!' she answered. But do go on with your shooting. Madame can read any one through, and my face bears signs of agitation. Just at that moment a great cock-pheasant came beating through the boughs overhead. I glanced at Mrs. Carlton, noticed her extreme pallor, and then almost recklessly raised my gun and fired. This was the first time I had used the gun since luncheon. What was the matter? I had an instant, 
just one brief instant to realize that there was something wrong. Then there was a deafening roar, a flash as if a thousand sparks came before my eyes. I reeled and fell, and a great darkness closed over me. End of chapter 8, part 1